We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Away we go, episode 46 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, April 23rd, 2021, the day after a successful start for the Capitals in their biggest stretch of the season so far. one nothing shootout win at Barry Trotz and the New York Islanders on Thursday night. Peter Laviolette's team outlasting Trotz's team. For at least one night, Lavi greater than Trotzy. Round two Saturday night at the Islanders. This Friday also is the day after yet another salvo has been fired by Alex Smith at Ron Rivera and the Washington football team. Couldn't at least this have ended well? 
couldn't at least Alex Smith's time with the Washington football team off all that happened and all he overcame have concluded in a nice way? You know, it's one thing for Dwayne Haskins' time with Washington to end ugly, or for Trent Williams' time with Washington to end ugly, or for Kirk Cousins' time with Washington to end ugly. I'm a little bit more process-oriented. Yes, hello, Kirk. We know that already. But did Alex's time have to end in an ugly fashion? Are you noticing a pattern here, by the way? All of these ugly endings. Well, I have a lot to say about what Alex said, too, and what was said by SI.com in this lengthy article that came out on Thursday. You know, I didn't want to have to do this. I I did not want to have to rant on Alex Smith, but I'm going to have to. He has left me no choice at this point. It just cracks me up, though. Not even the warm and fuzzy Alex Smith situation. You know, Project 11, greatest injury comeback in sports history, NFC East title, Associated Press, comeback player of the year. Not even that ends up ending well. Uh, also on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast, special guest, Washington football team insider, Ben Standig of the Athletic DC. Ben, as you may know, is a master mock drafter, a master mocker. He is quantifiably one of the best mock draft guys in the country. So we will talk a lot about the Washington football team's potential thinking as we are now inside of a week until the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft. Yes, one week from today, next Friday, what a show that will be. We will know what went down in the first round. Lots with Ben on Washington at quarterback and also Washington at linebacker. Why hasn't Washington done more at linebacker so far this offseason? What might that be telling us? And I'll talk some Wizards with Ben as well. Ben knows the Wiz very well. Is the rise, the recent surge of the Wizards, fool's gold, or actual confirmation that things are headed in the right direction. Uh, I'll talk some Georgetown basketball later in the pod, some notable developments with the Hoyas in recent days. This is your DC Sports Express. No other show like it. Every weekday, Monday through Friday, out by 5 a.m., but able to be listened to at any time. The show may come out early each weekday, but it doesn't necessarily have to be listened to early each weekday. Just know it is there waiting for you as you lift your head off the pillow ever so nicely. Uh, another thank you to you is in order. This podcast, the Al Galdi podcast, up 10 spots in the latest Apple podcast rankings in the U.S. football category. Top 40 in the country. That is a testament to you. So I, again, salute you. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to the podcast. Subscribing costs you nothing, but it helps out the podcast a lot, as does rating the podcast and writing just like a quick one-sentence review. If you have an iPhone or iPad and listen to this via Apple Podcasts, subscribing, rating, and reviewing literally takes like 30 seconds. Literally takes about as long as it has taken for all of the warmth and fuzziness of Alex Smith's retirement announcement on Monday to go away. Like I said, more on the Alex situation in just a few minutes. So on Thursday's podcast, I talked about Bill Belichick to the Washington football team, as we now have multiple media people in recent years saying that in the 2018 offseason, Bill Belichick inquired about coming to Washington as things were disintegrating between Bill and Tom Brady and Robert Kraft. And look, the inquiry, I think, was more just about Bill trying to gain some leverage with the Patriots. Maybe Bill just blowing off some steam of having these issues with Brady and Kraft. But, you know, we had some fun with this. We engaged in the what-if talk of what if Bill Belichick had come to Washington in that 2018 offseason. And the, the what-ifs are endless. I mean, I, I could have done like five hours on that. It, it really is fascinating to think about. You can always tweet me at Al Galdi. 
I've got this tweet from Brendan Langdon. And, you know, one of the things I mentioned in our discussion on Thursday was Bill Belichick was raised in Annapolis. So there is a local tie for Bill Belichick. His father, Steve Belichick, a legendary assistant football coach at the Naval Academy. And Bill Belichick went to Annapolis High School, so there are definite ties to this area. Well, Brendan tweeted me, he said, there's one more factor in Bill to WFT around that time. Back then, his mother had recently suffered medical issues, resulting in a lengthy stay at a convalescent center in Crofton, Maryland. He had been visiting frequently. Excellent point, Brendan. Yes, uh, his mom, Jeanette Belichick, actually ended up dying this past September. But yeah, she was in failing health. I don't know if it exactly coincides with the 2018 offseason, but I think, you know, it more or less does. So perhaps that was another thing kind of floating in be- in, uh, in Bill's head of, you know, maybe now is the time to make a move down south to Annapolis, or at least to the Annapolis area, and coach the NFL team that is closest uh, to Annapolis. But yeah, something to think about. Like I said, I mean, I don't think this ever came close to happening. Uh, but yeah, that is another thing uh, to throw into the mix there, what was going on with Bill's mom. Uh, speaking of dying, uh, not that we enjoy talking about that, but terrible news in the music world on Thursday. Shock G, the lead singer for Digital Underground, passing away at the age of 57. Now, you have to be of a certain age to know Shock G, but just understand, like, late 80s, early 90s, Shock G, Digital Underground was a thing. I mean, as a punk kid, I remember watching MTV, Digital Underground, you know, Humpty Dance, same old song. Shock G was the lead singer. In the Humpty Dance video, Shock G is the is the singer. He's the guy with the funky nose. He's the guy who would get into his alter ego, Humpty Hump, and that's Shock G. And the guy died on Thursday. Uh, per TMZ, died in a hotel room in Tampa. Cause of death unclear, but no signs of trauma. But just 57 years old. And Digital Underground is a really interesting hip-hop group because Digital Underground is essentially what launched Tupac. Tupac was in Digital Underground for the music video, same song. Shock G worked with Tupac as his career really got going. So awful news. I hated seeing that. Uh, the Humpty Hump guy, Shock G passing away. So rest in peace to him. I, I don't like to bring up death, especially on a Friday, but I did want to make mention of that. And I guess while we're talking music, I can update you on the latest feedback to the intro song to this podcast. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Michael King says simply in the subject line, yes to the song. Email from Kristen Carrera, I also vote to keep the intro. It shocked me the first time, but it has grown on me like a stubborn stepkid. Uh, interesting analogy there. Email from Will Barlow, I'm really enjoying your podcast and the theme music has moved from kitsch to eliciting a Pavlovian response of joy for me. I hope you keep it. So I have to be honest here. I had to Google Kitsch. That's very, very hard to do. You should Google that. Yes, Danny. I did have to Google that. I needed to Google that. I should have Googled that. And I did Google that. I, I did not know what Kitsch meant. Uh, but here is Kitsch. Kitsch is art, objects, or design considered to be in poor taste because of excessive garishness or sentimentality, but sometimes appreciated in an ironic or knowing way. I will take that, Will. I will take that, the intro song being kitsch. Okay, we take what we can get here on this podcast. My thoughts on Alex Smith's latest thoughts on his final season with the Washington football team coming up 
in moments. You know, maybe we just need to get Alex and Ron in the same room and just let them talk things out. Remove the stress from the situation, much like one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland, is removing the stress of selling your home. You know, no one really enjoys selling his or her home. It's time-consuming. It's something that weighs heavily on your mind. And then when you're done, you have to give tens of thousands of dollars of your money to the real estate agent. Well, what if I told you that that last part is no more? John Grandland, John G. with Real Broker, is changing the way that real estate is done. He is selling homes for free. That's right, for free. Zero commission, and you don't lose out on anything. So you have to worry about, oh, do I have to pay him 5%, 6%, 4%? No, that's out the window, and you still get high-level service. Here's how this works. For those living in Northern Virginia, if you buy and sell with John, the commission paid to John when you sell is refunded back to you when you buy, making the total commission paid to John when you sell zero. Simple. And if you're not selling a home in Northern Virginia, no worries. John can connect you with a top producing partner agent who can offer you the same great services with a discounted fee. Some conditions do apply. But just as Dustin, who had John sell a single family home in Reston, quote, John and his team are incredible. They sold our house in less than two days for asking price. Need I say more? John was professional and personable throughout the entire process. When we interviewed John, we knew he was the realtor for us. Not only was he friendly and personable, but he presented us data and statistics that showed his average days on market for his clients are around a week. Very impressive. End quote. Yes, John Grandlin brings data to the table. You know that speaks to me. He's a big Washington football fan, big Nats fan, great guy, understands real estate in the DMV. Find out what he can do for you. You got nothing to lose. Check out this website. It says it all. John G sells for free dot com. That's John G sells for free dot com. Zero commission real estate. You can't go lower than zero or better yet. Call John Grandland and tell him you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. Zero commission sale of your home. That phone number 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. John Grandland. Tell him Al Galdi sent you and start packing. So there was a movie many years ago called Cocktail. You ever see Cocktail? Came out in 1988 starred Tom Cruise. I was a kid when Cocktail came out. Cocktail was rated R, so I did not watch Cocktail when it was in movie theaters, but I eventually did watch Cocktail. And there's a line in Cocktail that's always stuck with me. It's a line that applies to many areas of life. Tom Cruise, as Brian Flanagan in Cocktail, at one point says, everything ends badly, otherwise it wouldn't end. Think about that. Everything ends badly. Otherwise, it wouldn't end. Very true, right? As much as we like to think that there are amicable partings, and to varying degrees there are, I think that's a very true saying when it comes to relationships, partnerships, etc. Everything ends badly. Otherwise, it wouldn't end. If things were so great, the thing wouldn't be ending. And I bring this up because to me, This applies perfectly to what we are learning about Alex Smith and the Washington football team. Everything ends badly. Otherwise, it wouldn't end. 
So Alex Smith on Monday announced his retirement. The announcement coming in a two-minute, 12-second video posted to Instagram. A video that was well-produced, had dramatic music in the background, and all the works. Monday and Tuesday were very much feel-good days regarding Alex Smith. Days on which he was praised and lauded and admired. I praised Alex, said a lot of nice things about Alex on Tuesday's podcast, and I meant those things, every single one of them, and I still believe those things. But this week (laughs) refused to end without another shot from Alex toward Ron Rivera. Alex on Monday announced his retirement. Alex on Thursday in an SI.com article that came out sounded off for a second time on how he was treated by Ron and the team this past season. The first time was in that interview for GQ.com that was published on February 23rd. And Alex in that interview delivered easily his most pointed words as a Washington player. Remember, at that point, he was still a Washington player. Regarding his comeback, Alex said, quote, so there was a very small group of people that actually thought that I could do this. I think the rest of the world either doubted me or they patronized me. Keep that word in the back of your mind, patronized. Yeah, that's really nice that you're trying. When I decided to come back, I definitely threw a wrench in the team's plan. They didn't see it, didn't want me there, didn't want me to be a part of it, didn't want me to be on the team, the roster, didn't want to give me a chance. Mind you, it was a whole new regime. They came in. I'm like the leftovers and I'm hurt and I'm this liability. Heck no, they didn't want me there. And quote, and then later in the passage in which Alex is just going on and on and on about how he was treated, he says, quote, it wasn't like open arms coming back after two years, end quote. So that was Alex in that interview for GQ.com back on February 23rd. Alex gets released on March 5th by the Washington football team. And you figure, okay, whatever tension there was between Alex and Ron, that's kind of been buried. Alex is gone. He's on to the next phase of his career. It turns out he ends up retiring. Okay, fine. The guy's going to go and live happily ever after with his beautiful family. Well, not so fast, my friend. On Thursday, we get an article by SI.com's Greg Bishop. And the article comes out, right, three days after Alex announces his retirement. And the article includes the following passage, which I have edited, which I have condensed so that you get the meat of the matter, okay? I have stripped away all the fat here. This is pure meat that you're getting in terms of what Alex had to say regarding Ron Rivera and the Washington football team to SI.com. Quote, the Alex Smith comeback story can unspool like a fairy tale. It's not. The warm and fuzzy narrative wrapped around his 2020 season ignored the tension that consumed him that started when he returned to practice after 21 months, only to discover that the Washington football team didn't quite know what to make of his return. He understood the hesitance, same as he recognized his own anxiety. Sometimes Smith saw his coaches flinch when they spied the blood that dripped from underneath his brace. He told friends he would not complain if they released him, told him he wasn't good enough or deemed him too much of a risk. Still, he did not understand the tactics his coaches used to keep him sidelined. First, they placed him on the physically unable to perform list, even though world-renowned doctors had pronounced him physically able to perform. At camp, players wore GPS trackers, and none traversed 4,000 yards a day on average, like Smith, whose coaches asked him to carry extra weight, push sleds, 
and hurdle bags for drills, tasks he had never done in 15 pro seasons, let alone before his leg had to be rebuilt. Smith believed the team wanted to see if it could break him, and if that sounds paranoid, the team physician agreed with him. They seem to be asking, Dr. Robin West says, what can he withstand? Are you sure you're clearing him? The coaches would ask. West would try and explain. The short answer, yes. The disclaimer, she would assess his leg based on her informed medical opinion. I got very little support, she says. He almost died. He almost lost his leg. Why would he want to? Reasonable questions. That's not your decision, West told them. Smith found the coaches patronizing, meaning he believed they preferred a cute story, the comeback already at the end. His father, Doug, says he believes the team sabotaged the return. None of the Smiths could figure out why. The coaches could worry about the injury in his future, but they were not experts. I'd rather have somebody right in my face say, what are you thinking, Smith says. It pissed me off, end quote. There is a lot to unpack there in that portion of the Alex Smith SI.com article that came out on Thursday. There is a ton to sort through with that. We are not going to rehash the history of Alex Smith with the Washington football team, nor are we even going to go step-by-step with what went down in the 2020 season with Alex Smith. I would point out, though, something very specific about Alex complaining about being put on that physically unable to perform list. Okay, so there is sort of a timeline here real quick. July 27th, Washington put Alex on the active physically unable to perform list. The next day, Ron Rivera during a Zoom press conference said that Alex had not passed his football physical. August 16th, Washington activated Alex off the active slash physically unable to perform list. September 5th, Washington kept three quarterbacks in the cut down to 53, Dwayne Haskins, Kyle Allen, Alex Smith, and then Alex was inactive weeks one through four, and then he came on in relief in that 30-10 loss to the Los Angeles Rams at a rainy FedEx field in week five, and we were off and running with Alex playing again in 2020. But the idea that him going on the physically unable to perform list in the preseason, okay, the idea that him going on PUP was some unfair tactic with some irrational way of handling this thing, with some nonsensical approach to the situation, that is nuts. And that is, to me, so unfair to the team, okay? Now, I don't doubt what's in this piece, okay? And I'll get to that momentarily. But Pup is there exactly for people like Alex Smith in Alex Smith's situation. Washington, i.e. the coaching staff, had no idea how Alex's leg was going to hold up over a camp. Just because things may have looked good initially didn't mean that things were going to continue to look good. Also, there is the thing of Washington having had to revamp its training staff because of the mess that had existed under Larry Hess. And so you're trying to establish sort of a new day and age when it comes to how you handle players from a training staff standpoint. And you have a guy coming off this incredibly difficult saga with the right leg, fractured fibula, fractured tibia, 17 surgeries off post-surgery infection and sepsis and all the things, right, that we all know so well by now. And you're not even going to put the guy on pup. You're just instantly going to be like, okay, you're good to go. Doctor says you're clear. Okay, fine. Let's go. I've seen enough. Like, no, you're going to take this in a conservative way. You're going to slow roll this, regardless of your feelings about Alex. Again, 
more on those momentarily. But I, I really couldn't stand this when I read this in the piece of like, first, they placed him on the physically unable to perform list. Ooh, oh, what evil. Okay, <laughs> what treachery, you know, what chicanery by Ron Rivera. How dare he put Alex Smith off 17 surgeries on his leg on the physically unable to perform list. That's what the list is for. That's what the pup list is for, people in Alex Smith's situation. What are we talking about here? Then, of course, you have the comments from Alex, and he is very clearly a bitter Bob with all this stuff. He is not happy about the way he was treated going into last season. And I do understand this to a point in that, you know, Alex Smith is a high-level athlete, okay? And people like this have an incredible drive. They are incredibly competitive. You know, they like to do the thing of me against the world. So I can get where Alex is coming from on that. You know, all of you doubted me. Bleep you, you're wrong. Bleep you, I'm right. Like, I get that. A lot of athletes operate that way. So I'm really not angry at Alex from that perspective. The way he approached this mentally is the way he had to approach this mentally in order to pull this off, right? What ended up being the greatest injury comeback in sports history. But from the perspective of the club, From the perspective of Ron Rivera, him and the team having genuine skepticism was totally warranted here, okay? Totally warranted. First of all, what Alex was trying to do was unprecedented. Nobody had ever done this, okay? Here you have Alex Smith well into his 30s coming off this unbelievable medical situation. It's not like he killed it in his last season to begin with in 2018, okay? I mean, anyone who watched that season understands Alex wasn't great that year. The record may have been good, but his performance was not for whatever reason, okay? So what? You're just going to hand this guy a starting job again? You're going to hand this guy a roster spot? No, you're going to be skeptical about him trying to come off this injury. And you're going to be like, okay, are we really doing this? Especially considering, oh, by the way, Alex carries with him a sizable salary cap hit. So it's not like some guy who's making a million dollars a year. You could say, all right, you know, this is kind of cool. This guy's coming back. It's no 20 plus million dollars in the cap hit. You're going to carry that for what? A guy who you don't think can play anymore or you have serious doubts about playing or you know if he plays again and he gets hurt, uh, you're under the microscope of, oh my God, look at this organization. They couldn't get things right with their previous training staff. Ron comes in, revamps the darn thing, and they still can't get things right with their training staff. I mean, you've got to look at this from the perspective of Ron Rivera and from the perspective of the club. And I think another thing that's going on here with these comments from Alex is this, and this to me is undeniable. And I talked about this off the initial Bitter Bob comments from Alex, those comments to GQ.com. I believe Alex is ticked off at how he was spoken of by Ron during last season, okay? And this became an undeniable thing as the season went on. Ron Rivera basically joning on Alex, throwing shade on Alex in, in, you know, subtle, maybe even passive-aggressive ways. But yeah, like, I could see Alex getting ticked off about that. Remember, first of all, Ron unprompted in a Zoom press conference during the 2020 season brought up Alex Smith potentially retiring after the season. Nobody had brought that up until Ron did. That was kind of interesting. Like, huh, that's, where did that come from? Like, who said anything about retiring? Then there were the famous comments from Ron in a Zoom press conference on the Wednesday before the NFC East clinching win at the Philadelphia Eagles in week 17. Ron gets asked, essentially, would you be here if not for Alex? And Ron says, yeah, if Kyle Allen had stayed healthy. 
Then you had the actual win at the Eagles in Week 17. Ron Rivera during his post-game Zoom press conference admitting to having actually considered benching Alex, but saying it worked out well enough. And then you had all of the after-the-season comments from Ron, never committing to Alex Smith for 2021, never committing to Alex Smith being on the team for 2021. So Alex very clearly saw the writing on the wall. Alex very clearly understood Ron did not want Alex back. And and I talked about this at the time. Like, man, the way Ron's talking, it sure doesn't sound like he wants Alex back. And sure enough, that was exactly the case. Washington released Alex on March 5th. But here's the thing with all this. Ron owed Alex nothing, okay? Nothing. Ron's job with the Washington football team is to clean up the toxic culture and to make the franchise a winning one again. That's what Ron is here to do. Point blank, period. Clean up the mess and make the team a winning team again. 27 seasons of mostly bad for the Washington football team, 1993 through 2019. Ron comes into that. His job isn't to cater to even a very likable person in Alex Smith trying to attempt something that had never been done before. Ron's job isn't to make people feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And man, golly gee, you go, Alex, and you try to pull off the comeback and you can be our starting quarterback in 2020. It was never about that. Ron is here to clean up the mess and get the program back on a winning track. Ron is not here to make Hallmark movies. Ron inherited a giant mess. He did not create the mess. He came to Washington really to establish law and order and to win. You know, there's a lot of talk in our country these days, right, about law and order. That's what Ron Rivera was brought here to do. Establish law and order, cut out the garbage, fix what's going on, and get the program back to winning games. And Ron, like most others, felt like Alex playing quarterback again, especially given his sizable salary cap hits, impeded the winning. Okay, Alex was never an anti-culture guy, but Alex, in Ron's mind, I know in my mind, and I believe in the minds of a lot of you listening, impeded the winning, at least the way things were viewed going into last season. Nobody thought Alex Smith was going to play again. And if he did, nobody thought he was going to play well again. And he did. And that's a credit to Alex. Alex did prove Ron wrong. Alex did prove so many of us wrong. He was able to play again, Alex was. And at times he played at a high level. You know, I go back to the 23-17 win at the Pittsburgh Steelers in week 13 Alex led Washington to one of its most improbable and impressive wins in franchise history. Like, I don't think I'm overstating things in saying that. Alex in the second half of that game was very good. But also for Alex in that 2020 season was him ultimately having bad numbers in quarterbacking a bad passing offense. There's no other way to say it. Alex, on the whole, wasn't very good last season. Washington's passing game, on the whole, was abysmal last season. Washington needs to do better at quarterback and did do better at quarterback last season, arguably when Kyle Allen started and certainly when Taylor Heineke started. I mean, think about it from Ron's perspective. What does it say about Alex Smith that Taylor Heineke comes to the team in December, starts in his first start for the team a playoff game against the eventual Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers, is going mano y mano with the GOAT Tom Brady on a Saturday night on national television. And Heineke quarterbacks easily the best game any Washington player quarterbacked in the 2020 season. It's not even close. It's not even a conversation, okay? No one can reasonably argue 
that there was a better quarterbacking performance by a Washington player last season than Taylor Heineke's against the Bucks in the postseason. What does that say about how bad the quarterback play was for Washington in the regular season? What does that say about Alex Smith's 2020 season as admirable as it ultimately was that Taylor Heineke blew out of the water any performance Alex or really anyone else had in the 2020 regular season. If you're Rod and you're watching all this, what are you saying to yourself about moving forward with Alex Smith with, again, a very sizable salary cap hit for 2021? Alex Smith was paid $71 million by Washington over three seasons, okay? I want want to say that figure again, $71 million. And I don't begrudge Alex any of that. I don't begrudge any of these athletes any of that when it comes to making money. I want all these guys to make as much money as possible. I want all of you listening to make as much money as possible. I hope every one of you listening has made $71 million over the last three years. But the idea of, you know, Alex is a victim or Alex was done wrong by Ron or done wrong by the Washington football team or why was Ron so mean to Alex? Why was Ron such a meanie pants to Alex Smith? I don't want to hear that, okay? And I'm getting tired of this here from Alex. These shots that he's firing at Ron Rivera since last season ended. What happened to Alex with his right leg was awful. His comeback is an all-timer, the greatest injury comeback in sports history. But he is not a victim in terms of how he was treated by Ron or by the team. This is reminding me in some ways, actually, like the Dwayne Haskins thing, where there were actually people, including some people in the media, who tried to paint Dwayne as a victim. And it made me sick. I'm like, he's not a victim, okay? He's not a victim, nor is Alex Smith. The notion that Ron needed to have been nicer to Alex or did Alex wrong is a joke, plain and simple. Ron is not here to make people feel all warm and fuzzy. Ron is here to deal with a monumental mess that is the toxic culture that enveloped this franchise for so many years under the ownership of Dan Snyder. And Ron is here to win. That's it. Those are his two mission statements as the head coach and the coach-centric approach. There's a reason I refer to Ron as Don Ron. He is the godfather. He is the head of the family. He is running this thing, and he's got to run it with a heavy hand because of the way things have gone in the past with this franchise under this owner. And if you think, well, how come Ron wasn't nicer to Alex? Uh, ask Trent Williams about the way Ron will act, okay? Because Trent Williams wanted to talk contract extension with Ron last offseason, and Ron wouldn't do it. Ron wasn't interested in doing that. You know why? Because Ron wasn't here to placate to Trent Williams. Ron wasn't here to give in to Trent Williams. Ron wasn't here to play Trent's reindeer games. And in a very different way, the same thing applies to Alex. And I'm not saying that what Alex was doing was what Trent was doing. Okay, two very different situations. But there is a common denominator of it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've been paid. Okay, there's a new sheriff in town. His name is Ron Rivera. He's here to clean up the mess and get the program back to winning. And that's it. Nothing else matters beyond those two things. Do you remember what Ron Rivera said to another guy who wanted to be placated to last offseason, Quentin Dunbar? This is my favorite Ron Rivera soundbite of his tenure so far as Washington football team head coach. Quentin Dunbar wanted a contract extension. 
And so he engaged in this like Jekyll and Hyde behavior where one day he wanted to be traded and then the next day he said, no, I don't want to be traded. And it became very confusing. Ultimately, of course, Quentin Dunbar was traded to the Seattle Seahawks. But do you remember when Ron finally talked about this a little bit in one of these Zoom press conferences last offseason? The idea was, well, Dunbar wanted a a contract extension, right? Well, what was the deal with that? And here's what Ron had to say. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. Short, sweet, but to the point and oh so powerful. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. Yeah. There it is. Cold blooded, point blank period. Nothing personal. Just business. Just what I'm here to do. I am not here to bow down to anyone. I am here to fix the mess and I am here to win. That's it. Ron Rivera did not create the culture that he inherited. Ron Rivera did not break Alex's leg. Ron Rivera did not give Alex the infection. Ron Rivera did not make Alex accept it. Now, that doesn't mean that Ron Rivera had no responsibility to Alex Smith. Alex is one of Ron's players, okay? But Ron didn't owe Alex anything. And the idea that Ron was unreasonable with how he treated Alex or approached Alex, I'm not on board with. Oh, he put him on the physically unable to perform list. How dare Ron do that? I mean, I could get out of here with that stuff. That's crazy. And here's another thing. Ron was dealing with cancer, okay? The guy had cancer. So if he wasn't as nice as he maybe should have been every single time, if he at times perhaps lacked a bedside manner with Alex Smith, I think that could be forgiven. Again, Ron himself was dealing with freaking cancer last season. One more thing on all of this, and it has to do with the doctor. Yes, Dr. Robin West. As you likely noticed, it wasn't just Alex who partook in the piling on in the SI.com article. Dr. Robin West also was a participant. Et to Dr. West. So Robin West is the Washington football team's director of sports medicine, was hired for that role in June 2016. It was Dr. West who served as the lead physician and surgeon for Alex Smith over his 17 surgeries on the right leg. But Robin West also is the medical director for Anova Sports Medicine. Anova is a nonprofit health system based in Falls Church, Virginia. Anova a major sponsor for the Washington football team for years. Heck, the team's headquarters in Ashburn, Virginia, known as the Anova Sports Performance Center. As you may recall, and we talked about this on the podcast, Anova on Friday, April 2nd, announced that Anova had, quote, made the decision to discontinue its medical team's role as the team physicians for the Washington football team, end quote. Anova in the statement said that the decision to discontinue its medical team's role as the team physicians for the Washington football team was based on Anova having, quote, revisited its strategic priorities, end quote, and having, quote, become even more focused on advancing patient-centered care in the D.C. region, end quote. Now, Anova in the statement noted that the system's sponsorship is the official health system for the Washington football team would continue through the 2021 season, but the implication was after 2021, ANOVA be out. Okay, here's something else about ANOVA, and this is something that came to light thanks to a good number of you who listen to this podcast. One of the major financial backers of ANOVA is 
Dwight Schar, one of the now former Washington football team disgruntled minority owners. The ANOVA Health System includes something called the ANOVA Schar Cancer Institute, which is named after, yes, Dwight Schar. We in May 2015 learned that Dwight and his wife Martha donated $50 million to build what became the ANOVA Schar Cancer Institute. Go back to when ANOVA put out this announcement that ANOVA was discontinuing its medical team's role as the team physicians for the Washington football team. Friday, April 2nd. Do you know what else happened on Friday, April 2nd? Dan Snyder buying out Dwight Schar, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith, i.e. the three disgruntled minority owners, became official. That's the day on which Danny, becoming even more of a majority owner, became official. Hmm. Coincidence? Or maybe not. The day on which Danny buys out the three disgruntled minority owners, ANOVA, which is funded big time by one of those minority owners, puts out an announcement saying, we have made the decision to discontinue our medical team's role as the team physicians for the Washington football team. This is because of Dwight Schar. Clearly, this is because of Dwight Schar. And Dr. Robin West, as the medical director of Inova Sports Medicine, now feels emboldened to speak however she wants to speak because Inova is getting out of bed with the Washington football team. So yeah, Dr. Robin West feels just fine opening up to SI.com and bashing Ron Rivera and the team the way Alex Smith bashed Ron Rivera and the team. And look, I don't think Dr. Robin West is some like quack. Like she's a very respected doctor. She does a lot with the Washington Nationals, but I don't think in any way she says anything close to this stuff if Anova is still going to be a partner with the Washington football team moving forward. If the Dan Snyder minority owners feud never happens, then Dr. Robin West never says what she said to SI.com. That's that's not a doubt in my mind about something like that. So I think that needs to be understood about what was in that SI.com article as well. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. For all of the love and the praise and the platitudes that were put forth on Monday and Tuesday, off the retirement of Alex Smith, things changed rather quickly as the week went on, did they not? We go from lollipops and candy canes and bouquets on Monday and Tuesday to more venom being spewed by Alex toward Ron Rivera and the Washington football team on Thursday. Again, everything ends badly. Otherwise, it wouldn't end. It's so true, and it totally applies to Alex Smith with the Washington football team. And now that we know... We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So all that we do know, Washington's decision to release Alex Smith looks like even more of the right call. It was time for this relationship to end. I wish Alex nothing but the best. He has so much to be proud of, and he has so much to live for. But this thing, very clearly, was a whole lot uglier behind the scenes than we ever knew up until now. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter, at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, so the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft is this Thursday night. You are by now neck deep in mock drafts, for which the truth is some are much better than others, and some mock drafters are better than others, and there's nobody better than the man who joins me now. Washington football team insider Ben Standing of The Athletic DC, a two-time winner of the Huddle Reports annual NFL mock draft contest. Most mock drafts happen and they're never heard from again. Ben puts his mock drafts under the scrutiny of the Huddle Report and twice has been crowned champion for his accuracy. He is the host of his own podcast, the Standing Room Only Podcast, and it's great to have him back on the Al Galdi Podcast. Hello, Ben. How are you? Al, I'm doing great. Always a pleasure to be on with, uh, you know, the the, the voice of, of, of DC Sports. I appreciate it. I appreciate the uh, draft accolades. I'm not going to lie. I'm nervous this year. I'm probably nervous every year, but this year, uh, all over the place. I mean, I'm not just talking about 19, but just everywhere. It's very complicated. So I'm not excited for my score this year, but we'll hope for the best. Well, not to put more pressure on you, but it's one thing to win two titles. Three championships is rarefied air. That's Joe Gibbs territory. So I hope you're prepared to enter into that realm with your final mock draft for this year. Gonna try. I I tried this experiment, like uh, one dirty secret on the mock draft thing. I think is that like people sometimes will say, "Well, how is this guy getting to this spot?" Or why would you have that? Like sometimes it's like, look, I think in in a real in in the real world, the first pick is made and then it goes down from there all the way to the bottom. In a mock draft world, we're like, okay, I like this player for this spot. I'm gonna put him there and then figure out the rest. Most years, I think there's a, a there's a decent amount of those where I'm like I like this player at this spot. This year, it's I got Trevor Lawrence. I feel good with that one. And then after, after that, it really starts to you know you, uh, you know it really starts to go kind of everywhere. Um, and that's um, that's part of the problem. I mean, you know, really three, four, five 
a lot of questions, and then it just everything kind of you know cascades from there. So I know Ron Rivera has talked many times already in his time as Washington football team head coach about his gut, right? I got to go with my gut. How much of your mock projections are gut-based versus intel-based? Because I know you talk to a lot of people, and I would also imagine that, hey, you know, you're trying to decipher between that which is true versus that which is not true in this time of year in which there's so much deception going on. So what about that aspect of all this, gut versus intel, and how do you figure out what's true when it comes to the intel? So I don't know what people think about when when they when somebody is proclaimed to be a, a, a mock draft guru. Like, what do they think that means? Do you think that means that the GMs of the specific teams are telling you what's going to happen? Well, I mean, maybe they do for some people, not for me. When I first won, I think the first year I won was 2012. I I mean, I mean this like I couldn't even get. I, I don't think I even had your number. Like, I, mean, I, was, I was nowhere. I was a I was a blogger for a fantasy. I, 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 let me let me not use the word blogger. I was a writer slash editor for a fantasy football site. I was, I, I, I was already doing some things. So I say on the Wizards, I was nowhere for the Washington for the NFL. Right? I mean, I grew up around here, but I, I, I was nowhere when I won it the second time. So this was two thousand eighteen. Uh, 2018 or 19, I don't know, whatever. Like I had, I, I at that point wasn't even full time covering this team. I was still more on the NBA side. Now, yes, it is different. Now I'm with the Athletic. Now I've, I've been more immersed in these things. Now I, I, I have written articles recently talking about the draft where I spoke to general managers and executives and things. To be honest, I'm now more confused <laughs> doing that based on my mock draft because whereas before it was just like, well, my own instinct seemed to work and. I, I don't mean this in any egotistical way, but you know in the movie A Beautiful Mind where he's looking at the equations and things that seem to jump out at him? Like that's kind of how it worked for me. Like I, I studied a lot on needs and, and, and try to get some insight and it just worked out. Now there's just too much, there's too many voices in my head. And some people you'll talk to will say, you know, the Bengals should absolutely take Penny Sewell at five. It's a no-brainer. I think they're going to do it. Other people will say, oh, obviously they're going to reunite Joe Burrow with his former college receiver in Jamar Chase, that's going to be the move. Book it. Oh, but then there's other people say, oh, wait, Kyle Pitts, he's going to get past Atlanta because Atlanta's taking quarterback, and therefore they will be the ones to take him. And then, of course, there's the always popular, well, aren't they going to trade down? And, and, and yes, you could say that for most years, but this is the thing I'm saying. When you get more information, I think for me, it only makes it more confusing, and I, I think that's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, I think a lot of us are confused, but uh, that's, of course, so much of the fun of all this. So with our team, the Washington football team, so many kind of ways we could attack this, but the quarterback thing has been the thing, even though it may be very unlikely that Washington ends up taking a quarterback on day one or day two. What would you say, as things stand right now, is the percent chance of a trade-up in the first round to take a quarterback? The big thing that has been speculated on a bunch, what do you think is the likelihood of that? What would be a percent chance in your mind of that? So when we say that, right, we're say, we're talking about trading into the top 10. We're not assuming Justin Fields or even Matt Jones or anybody slides to 19 or slides to even like, say, 16, right? Because it moved up yeah. to 16, yeah. whatever. I don't think anybody's going to be like, oh, they made a big trade. No, okay. So to move into the top 10, right, Dallas – the Giants and the Eagles pick 10, 11, 12. You got to move ahead of them just because they're not going to help you. And you probably have to move up because the Patriots are there at 15. The Bears at 20 could move up. Even Denver at nine might be up me, maybe jump ahead of them. I don't know. I don't know how to put a number on it, but I, I, I've maintained this whole time. I just don't see it. I understand that it's the sexy move. I understand Washington needs a long-term quarterback. I get that they may have some interest in some of these guys, Trey Lance, Justin Fields. 
I, I just it just doesn't seem to go with what Rivera, the way Rivera has talked about the situation, the roster building. You know, it, again, I'm not saying that Ryan Fitzpatrick, Kyle Allen, and Taylor Heineke screams were good at quarterback. That it's not. I mean, you know, but at the same point. It also doesn't scream desperation, a point that Rivera has made often. It's not, I mean, I wonder how many times does a team have three quarterbacks who started games the previous season and all acquitted themselves at least reasonably. I mean, Kyle Allen a little more, a little less, but at least compared to the bar, he came in, he clearly jumped the bar that, that Dwayne Haskins had set. Um, so I don't see it. I, I, it just doesn't, it just, it doesn't make sense to me. And also like this, like, if they really were so gung ho on this, then they should have gone and done the, the deal the 49ers made to get the third pick. Because now, even if you want somebody, now you're maybe having to see if the 49ers don't take that guy. So now you're already having to wait and the bar has been set. So I, it just doesn't seem to make sense. They also went and signed Ryan Fitzpatrick immediately in free agency. They re-signed Taylor Heineke pretty quick. These are moves you make if you're really like, wow, we love this quarterback so much, we have to go get somebody. So I don't put a huge percentage on it moving into the top 10. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I, I agree. I, I think the signing of R- Ryan Fitzpatrick said a lot. And I know coaches lie all the time, but trading up into the top five, top four, that would basically contradict everything Ron Rivera has said this offseason. And it wouldn't be the first time that a head coach has lied, but he, he does seem to be relatively honest in these Zoom pressers. So I, I would be surprised like you would if that happened. Now, you mentioned the idea of one of these quarterbacks falling. Which of, let's say, the next three guys, right? So we assume Trevor Lawrence won. We assume Zach Wilson, too. Out of Mac Jones, Justin Fields, Trey Lance, who do you think would be most likely, to whatever extent that likelihood exists, to fall beyond, say, the ninth pick, to fall into the double-digit territory of picks? So if Mac Jones doesn't go at three, I think the answer is him. Um, now, I will say, I feel like this is always happens in these debates, right? It's, it's always funny. It's like, uh, I always get accused of being some LeBron James hater because I will dare to point out like he's not perfect. And so when you do that, people tell you you hate LeBron James. I'm like, well, no, I'm just not saying he walks on water the way you are, right? So it feels like with Matt Jones, it's kind of we, now we've reached out of territory because everybody's like, oh, how dare San Francisco trade up to take this guy when he doesn't have the ceiling of Fields or Lances to then therefore make it sound like Matt Jones is trash and isn't worthy of being picked anywhere in this draft. Um, he's considered to be a pretty good prospect. I think we're downplaying him a bit. That said, I would suspect if he doesn't go three, he could slide outside of the top ten. I don't know if he would get past New England at 15, but he would be the one I, w- I would project. Um, feels like Trey Lance is pretty good. And the Justin Fields thing, uh, I talked before about range. If you told me he went three to San Francisco or told me he was still available in the teens, I, I wouldn't think that that was crazy. But Jones, if he slips past three, would be my would be my answer. And then after that, I guess I would say Fields. You know, it's funny, too, because we've had a lot of talk about the second-tier group of quarterbacks, and some recent mocks have had Washington taking a quarterback in the second round. I've done a lot of, like, draft theory talk on the podcast recently, and one of the things that's undeniable, right, is if you need a franchise quarterback, it's almost certain that you're not going to find that guy outside of the first round. Like, recent history screams that. There are exceptions, but by and large, the great quarterbacks now, the franchise quarterbacks now, are first-rounders. Given Washington's situation, right, searching for a franchise quarterback but with reasonable options already on the roster, do you, do you think it's worth Washington's time to spend, say, a second-round pick or a third-round pick on, you know, a Kyle Trask or a Kellen Mond or a Davis Mills? Or do you feel like if the first round comes and goes and Washington hasn't taken a quarterback, 
probably a pretty good chance Washington won't be taking a quarterback in the draft. Well, I mean, so I haven't really done a lot of thinking about this in terms of what like Marty Herney and Martin may have done before, but right last, was it last year or two years ago, Carolina drafted Will Greer, I want to say on day two. Um, so at least it shows some willingness to have done that. I'm with you though in general, right? At, at other positions, there's an order to the situation, whether you're talking about defensive line or wide receiver or whatever. There's a first round talent, there's second round talent, there's third round talent, and so on. If you're drafting a quarterback in the second or the third round, the likely scenario is that that player is worthy of a pick one or two rounds later and that you jumped the board. Like Todd McShay a month or so ago, did a two-round mock. He gave Washington Kellen Mond, and I believe he said in the in his in the description that yes, he's giving Kellen Mond giving Kellen Mond here at fifty-one, but on his own board he has him at eighty-nine. And I'm like, yes, this is exactly why you don't do this. And yes, you do get your Brett Favre's and your Russell Wilsons, or you know, if we're going to go to round four, Kirk Cousins. But by and large, it's only because of the nature of the position that you're willing to to take this risk. And I don't think that. Washington should be in this risk. If they only had Ryan Fitzpatrick and Steven Montez, all right, maybe we could make that debate because you wouldn't even at least need a backup quarterback. They have that. They have two guys who are seem to be pretty capable. So to me, it's not worth it. And for what it's worth, if you really think that Davis Mills or Kyle Trask is worthy of that, then take him in the first round. Like I, or I mean, like if you think he's all that, and I get it. Like, well, but maybe I don't think he's good enough for nineteen. Well. Then you're taking a big risk that a quarterback you think is that good will still be there at 51. Either you're either you're way off from the league, or you're you're you're, you know, you're drafting a guy way earlier than he probably should go. Yeah, trade down and, and take the guy if if you like him that much. Talking with Washington Football Team Insider Ben Standing of the Athletic DC, the host of the Standing Room Only podcast. So you mentioned the pass for Marty Herney and Martin Mayhew. As you think about what Washington will be doing. To what extent do you think Herney's and Mayhew's draft histories matter? Because obviously they were, in theory, running those previous drafts. This is the coach-centric approach, right? In theory, it's Ron Rivera with the final say-so on these picks. Do you think Herney's and Mayhew's track records and drafts matter when considering what Washington is going to do in this upcoming draft? Or is it, hey, this is kind of a new day and age. It's Ron in charge, and you know the past may not be indicative of the future when it comes to Herney and Mayhew. It's a great... It's a great question, and, you know, when we talked about doing these mock drafts, like, at least before, I felt like I had some read on the on the situation based on Bruce Allen and, 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 and what have you. I have no idea. I mean, yeah, we can play the game of here's what Martin Mayhew did during his time in Detroit, and here's what Marty Gurney did. It's pretty clear Ron Rivera is making the decision. Now, maybe maybe he makes the decision based on he, he kind of has a thought, and it's Mayhew who presents the idea that ultimately he sides with. But that is very different than those two guys sort of being having final say. And, you know, if Rivera has certain thoughts, uh, you know, I think the whole point of this is to not have yes men in the room, to have disagreement. But at the same point, if Rivera is the one sort of making the call, then go through it. Plus, like, you know, I'm not – at some point, you can't name everybody in the front office, but, you know, they, they add in Chris Polian, a former GM. They have Eric Stokes, who was an assistant GM um, before as well. These are other voices, Bob. Uh, you know what I mean? So, like, and then, look, I don't know. Does Jack, I mean, if Scott Turner was the one who was supposedly really excited for Antonio Gibson last year, and you have to factor in what the what the coaches and the coordinators want, too. Otherwise, like, it doesn't make sense to draft a player, as we've seen this, this place do, draft a player that doesn't work for the coaches. So, 
you know, Jack Del Rio and says, hey, this is the linebacker I want. Even if Marty Herney disagrees, well, which one are you going to go with? So I, I'm not putting too much stock into whatever those guys did before. Um, you know, you take note of it like you do with anything else, but I'm not going, wow, Marty, hey, Marty Herney did this, Marty Lee did that, therefore we'll expect this from Washington. Yeah, I agree with you on that. The fact that that pre-draft Zoom press conference on April 16th was Ron Rivera and Martin Mayhew, not Ron and Marty Herney, not Ron, Martin, and Marty. Was that to you indicative of anything? I mean, it, it may just be Marty Herney was busy. It may be Marty Herney had no interest in talking to the media. But the fact that it was Mayhew with Ron, not Herney with Ron, or not Mayhew and Herney with Ron, did that say anything to you or not really? Um. Not a ton. I mean, look, I think we go back to when this whole thing started, right? Herney was the first one that we heard was coming on board. Originally, we thought it was going to be the GM. Then it wasn't. Was that because he didn't really want to be the general manager and all the trappings that come with it, including things like having to do Zoom press conferences with reporters, and he just wants to be essentially the scout or something else? I take it sort of as Martin Mayhew is the general manager, even though I think that Mayhew and Herney effectively are the same level uh, of power, if that's the right, uh, right, right phrasing. And that may, that Herney, yeah, at this point in his career is not really looking to do the, the these types of, of, of things if he doesn't have to. And that Mayhew, this is more of his responsibility. He does have the GM title. And obviously, you know, he has a lot of, um, you know, the, uh, he's got a voice in that room. Now it is notable that Rivera, I think as previously he kind of said that Herney likes to be a road scout and, and gadding about. So I don't remember what was going on on that day that maybe he was somewhere. I have heard from different people. He's been at this pro day and that pro day. Martin may he's been at, at some things as well, but it feels like Herney has been on the road a lot for sure. With the pro day stuff, Washington not being at that second Trey Lance pro day. Do you think that is indicative of anything? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if you're telling me anybody is making a decision at this point off a second pro day, I mean, I, I'd be skeptical skeptical off of that in terms of like what the organization is doing or thinking. Now, if the play, if the player at the pro day is an absolute disaster, you know, comes in, uh, I'm making this up, comes in disheveled, hungover, balls are hitting the dirt, speaks to coaches or scouts afterwards, you know, is disrespectful or whatever. Okay. If you, if you have some real red flags, that's one thing, but just the idea of throwing against no defense, I, I, I can't comprehend that would make any difference either in either direction. Uh, plus, they're all going to look at the tape if they want to. Right. So, yeah, I, I no, I didn't put any stock into that one way or the other. Yeah, that, that reminds me, and you would know this having covered the Wizards. Haven't the Wizards multiple times drafted guys who they never even brought in for pre-draft workouts? And it just goes to show you, like, all this pre-draft stuff can end up meaning a whole bunch of nothing in terms of what the team ends up doing. Yeah, I think it was JaVale McGee, maybe, maybe Oubre, too. Uh, Something like that, yeah. That they, they didn't work out, but yeah. I mean, that's the that's the thing. I mean, they you know all, all these things. I think are just maybe an opportunity to get to know the person, which is not nothing. And obviously for the coaching staff because they've been busy during the year too as well. But in terms of the broader evaluation, that's been happening over the course of months, maybe years. In the case of a guy like say Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields and some others who you've kind of known for a while are going to be people to draft. So yeah. I, Look, everything is a piece of the puzzle, and like some situations will bring up more red flags than others. And we do always hear about these draft workout guys who, wow, can you believe what that player did? And now all of a sudden, they go from a mid a mid round pick to somehow getting into the first round. But by and large, these things don't really make, make that much of a difference. Getting back to Washington at nineteen, but getting away from the quarterback. So three nine quarterbacks who, of course, come up a lot. 
for Washington at that 19th spot. The Penn State linebacker, Micah Parsons, the Notre Dame linebacker, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, and the Virginia Tech offensive tackle, Kristen Darasaw. And, you know, those three guys have been all over the place in terms of these mocks. Looking at this, thinking about this, how many out of those three do you think end up being available to Washington at 19? Um, I, I guess based on what I'm seeing, if you, if, if mock drafts and just other reports provide any type of floor to ceiling scenarios, it doesn't feel like Parsons gets that far. I think the other two definitely could be. I mean, I had somebody, a scout tell me he thought Uso Karamo was the best defensive player of the whole draft. I had somebody else tell me he thinks he's more of a 30 to 45 pick. By and large, I think most people seem to think he's worthy of being picked in that 19 range. And, you know, teams like New England, Denver, I'm sorry, New England, the Raiders, Miami, 15, 17, and 18, I think could all make sense for him. Darisaw, I think the range is like 13 to 21. Uh, the Chargers need to protect Justin Herbert. And, and at that point, it's possible that Penny Sewell and uh, Rashawn Slater from Northwestern are off the board. And if, if the Chargers want to tackle, Darisaw could go. But, you know, he's not a clean prospect as, as nobody is. And therefore, he could slip. And if he gets past Minnesota, past the Raiders, then, yeah, I think he could be there for Washington. So I would say two of the three is your best hope. It's I'm trying to do mock draft scenarios to see what I would do if none of them are there because that's definitely a possibility. And if there's none of them there, then uh, then I start to, uh, you know, have convulsions and don't know what I'm going to do with myself. What what would you do? I mean, that's interesting. Let's say Washington doesn't do the quarterback thing, and neither Parsons nor JOK nor Darasaw is there at nineteen. What do you think Washington is thinking at that point? Right. So now it becomes a question. Well, then who fell down? Right. I mean, if like Elijah Vera Tucker from USC, a big college tackle that people are looking at more as a guard, but you know maybe it's sort of like a Brandon Scherf thing. You try him a tackle. Worst case scenario, he's a longtime starter, a guard. You know, I think a guy like that would make a lot of sense. I, I suspect if he's available, Washington would take him. Um, but so, like, that would be the case. Like, I'm not projecting he's going to be there. But if all these other players go, then somebody has to has to drop, right? And obviously, we can say trade down. Everybody wants to trade down and get more stuff. The question would be, why would some other team want to trade up? It's possible that the run on defensive ends could sort of begin in that range. Um, it's possible that like there's only like one or two cornerbacks left that people are excited about. Greg Newsom from Northwestern or Caleb Farley from Virginia Tech. I don't think Washington would necessarily go down that route unless they're open to maybe moving Kendall Fuller to, to free safety, which is a need. I don't, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying if, so if you told me that, then maybe they get involved in the cornerback and maybe that's an area. But um, yeah, I guess that would be the thing. Like who's going to move down? And it, like also like there's also like Jamin Davis from Kentucky who's been talked about a lot of the last few weeks as a riser. You know, I, I, I don't know, like spoiler, we have a, we, we did a beat rider mock draft at the athletic. I think it's going to be up on Friday. Hopefully I'm not spoiling too much, but uh, I won't say what I picked in the first round, but in the second round, Jamin Davis was still on the board. Wow. I took him. So are we do uh, is that right? I, I, I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> but, uh, but, um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, that's the thing. I think these things are kind of, you know, still kind of all over the place. Yeah, the Caleb Farley thing is scary because of that back surgery. And you're like, boy, taking a corner with a back ailment like that, is that, you know, going to be something that you're going to end up regretting? With linebacker, right? I mean, you mentioned Jamin Davis. We just talked Micah Parsons and Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. It is so interesting that off a season in which Ron Rivera publicly criticized his linebackers and in the midst of an offseason in which one of the three linebackers who played a lot last year, Kevin Pierre-Lewis, bolted via free agency, 
Washington basically has done nothing at linebacker. Like we waited for this in free agency. It didn't happen. I know some guys came off the board before free agency started, like Matt Milano resigned, Levante David resigned, but Washington just hasn't done anything at linebacker. And I mean, I suppose the, the team is looking at the draft, but that can be kind of dangerous, right? To say, well, we'll just fill the void in the draft. Like you don't know how the draft is going to play out. So do you think it's more that Washington likes its internal options at linebacker more than anyone realizes? Or do you think it's just that maybe Washington doesn't think linebacker is the priority that so many of us think? That maybe Ron is like, you know what? We did a lot of defensive alignments last year in which we had just two linebackers. We do have Cole Holcomb and John Bostic, and so we don't have to go out and spend a bunch of money on a linebacker. What do you think the thinking is at that position? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. You know, sometimes the the people that we listen to for answers tell us what they think, and we, we're so used to that not happening that we have to look that, that we like run past what they said to try to find meaning. During one of these off-season press conferences, Ron Rivera pulled back on his criticism of the linebackers, said, yes, I, I did call them out during the season, but as the season progressed, I thought they did better. I think John Bostic was doing some good things. We like Cole Holcomb. And, yeah, he's talked about – I never bought in that they were, like, in bad in love with Kevin Pierre-Lewis, the person, because they you know, didn't play him much down the stretch, partly injury and part they just didn't use him. Um, but I do buy the idea that they want that type of – player. And look, this is a, a linebacker with some speed and athleticism. This is a draft that seems to be, I don't know about deep is the right word, but there seems to be some options at linebacker, inside linebacker over the first, you know, two, three, four rounds. So maybe he, they just kind of knew that like they're going to get one of these guys one way or the other, right? And and so maybe that's why they feel like they don't have to, to do much. They, they added David Mayo, but I don't get any sense that that's much more than just a depth play. I guess the fun one, if we really want to have some fun with this, is you know, he was very non-committal on the Landon Collins thing the other day. Yes. Says, yeah. You know, when I asked about him playing safety, he's like, "Yeah, that's just Landon being Landon." You know, we just want him back on the field. I, I don't, I don't necessarily again think that that's the plan, but he didn't, he didn't say it wasn't. So perhaps that factors in there somehow. Um, and again, like you said, I mean, it, is, it isn't. It's not like teams really go with. It's not like they go with a ton, a ton of three linebacker. What looks like you still would need more, and arguably, I think they need an upgrade over what they have. But maybe they just assume that they're going to get one in the draft, one way or the other. All right. While I have you, I do want to ask you about the Wizards. I know you I mean you still cover the team to an extent. You follow the team. You care about the team. It is such a strange team, and I know we can probably say that for every Wizards team over the last you know ten, fifteen, twenty years. But the, the team has either been like really good or really bad in various stretches this season. The team inexplicably has been very good against Western Conference teams and very bad against Eastern Conference teams. But now the Wizards are soaring and they are making a run here toward at least the play-in tournament. And, you know, who knows? Maybe they end up making the actual real NBA playoffs. Bigger picture question, is the Wizards making the play-in tournament a good thing or is it just fool's gold? Well, I mean, there's a few ways. I mean, so I just recorded a podcast, which I appreciate you mentioning uh, earlier, uh, yesterday, well, Wednesday, with uh, David Aldridge, who uh, obviously knows the NBA. And I was talking about how there's a lot of comparisons between what's happening with the Wizards this season and what happened with the Washington football team this season. Yeah. Yes, the Wizards came into the season with expectations of making the playoffs. Then they started 0-5, and we threw that out and laughed at anybody talking about it, right? So, we're, so we spend most of the year talking about it with the lottery pick and how they need to get a, they need to get a top five pick, like the way we talked about with the football team about 
They got to get a top five pick and get a quarterback, whatever. Then out of the blue, there was this pivot. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, are they good? Like what's happening here? How are they winning games? Wait, are they going to make the playoffs? Because if they make the playoffs, obviously for Washington, the football team, that meant instead of picking 10 or 11 where the Dallas and the Giants are, they dropped the 19, thus taking them essentially out of the quarterback situation, you know, easily at least, right? Similar to the, to, to, to the Wizards. Yes, if they make the play-in game and don't advance to the top eight part of the playoffs, they would still be in the lottery, but they would still also have far fewer ping-pong balls than they would have if they had just stunk, as was looking like the case. If they actually make the playoffs, now they're out of the lottery altogether. And if you want to talk about, in both cases, what's the best thing for this team going forward, well, there's an argument to be made. You can't win in football realistically easily, at least without a good quarterback. And in basketball, one player can make such a difference, and that different, those difference makers, the easiest way to get them is with the draft. Um, so I think, like, on the one hand, like, look, it's not like the players are tanking ever. So if they're if they're making moves, they do look a lot better. Westbrook is playing at an All NBA level, and most of the year he was playing at a you know, oh my God, is this guy over level? Um, so to that extent, I mean, you know, whatever, go for it. And I, I, maybe it's you know, to a degree, fool's gold if we're talking about contending. But at the same point, it is I think arguably going to set them back uh, in terms of how this thing goes, if they're picking at the back of the lottery or, and I get it to the people who say, well, Kawhi Leonard was like the 15th pick. I, I get it. We're talking about odds. We're not talking about how the world will work. I don't know if everybody knew how it worked and Kawhi would have gone first. I mean, that's not how the world works, but just the, your chances are the higher you pick, the more options you have, the better off you tend to be. So um, I think it's good for the people involved. It's been a trying year. If they're getting some enjoyment out of this, great. And it's good to see Westbrook isn't over. But at the same point, I, 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 I don't know if this is the best thing for the for franchise in the long haul, but there's not much anybody can do better at this point. If the Wizards make the play-in tournament, do you think that saves Scott Brooks's job? I mean, I thought for so much of the season he was fired coach coaching. If they make the play-in tournament, if they make the actual postseason, do you think Brooks ends up being back next season? Well, I think that's a big question. I mean, the, the playing tournament, I don't know. I mean, hopefully, it's, it's sort of like when people would say, oh, here come the football team. They won the division. I'm like, yeah, they were 7-9. and nine. I mean, let's not go too crazy. They, they did what they had to do, but I mean, let's not go crazy. So similar to being, making the playing tournament as a 10 seed wouldn't exactly get me going. Even, you know, even winning 8 of 9 here or whatever, you know, their overall record is still well under uh, underwater. So it's not like they over the course of the year they've done great. Um I don't know. I mean, look, I think the thing with Scott Brooks is he's currently making $7 million a year. I cannot comprehend on any level. Even if he came back, he'd be coming back from that. So is he willing to take a pay cut to say half that money? Maybe. I mean, that's part like Ryan Kerrigan's still a free agent right now, right? You have to imagine that part of the reason is he's unwilling from an ego perspective to take enough of a pay cut to stay in the place he's been for a decade. Scott Brooks may view it as like, well, crap. Right? It's either I take this money from these guys or I'm going to go – uh, you know, guest on TNT, uh, do a, a fill in a TNT every once in a while or something because I'm not going to get hired for that coach. I, I, I mean, me personally, I would like to, I don't want to say, I don't want to say, I don't like to talk about somebody getting fired, but like at the same point, it feels like in the broader picture, they need to figure out a new direction. But at the same point, if they have this momentum based on Ted Leonsis' history, I could absolutely see him saying, oh, I can justify this. We can run this back. We, if we had had everybody healthy from the start of the year, and why couldn't this have been a 50-win team? I'm not saying I think that. I'm saying I can see them justifying that. So 
If they keep going and make the real playoffs, the top eight, I could see Brooks coming back. But like I said, to me, it just feels like from a bigger picture perspective, at some point they have to figure out what are they really doing and this would feel more like the fool's gold if they bought that this was something. Yeah, no, I hear you on that with Brooks. If this season's Wizards or last season's Washington football team, does that make Troy Brown Jr. Dwayne Haskins? <laughs> uh, I feel bad for Troy Brown for, for that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, look, it's, it's an interesting parallel to an extent, right? You have these two first-round picks, uh, both with the 15th pick in the draft, now that uh, you say that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like that. Um, you know, with, with 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 the football team, obviously had, they got nothing for Haskins. The investment just went down the toilet pretty, you know. Right, right. I don't know if they would have gotten anything after the first benching. Certainly after the second one, they were just getting nothing. At least on the Wizards on the Troy Brown front, look, I think it was an example of the coaching the coaching staff in the front office not being on the same page with that pick. It never seemed to work with Scott Brooks. Just like Haskins. <laughs> right, right. Just like Haskins. Never seemed to make any sense. But at least – they didn't, I mean, I'm not saying the football team got stubborn with him. I mean, Rivera just didn't have enough time to really even do anything with Haskins. But at least in the case of the Wizards, they were able to say, okay, look, we, this isn't working. No matter what else is going to happen, what else can we do with this? They didn't just say, well, we picked this guy. We're going to make this work. They moved on. And, you know, Daniel Gafford, even before the trade, was a guy who I kind of liked the Bulls when I saw him play for all the reasons you're seeing now. But, you know, I didn't, you know, when, when, when the Bulls made him available, like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And he's looked really good. I mean, he may be a guy who's really good for 15 to 20 minutes a game, not 35, but that's fine. You, you need you need guys to play all the minutes of the game. You got to fill out the whole 48 minutes per, you know, times five over the course of a game. And he's been really an energetic piece for them. And it's been, I think it's been a big help. He's been great. There's no question about that. It. It's like I said, it's, a, it's a been a bizarre season in so many ways. I mean, Brooke Lopez, uh, Robin Lopez has been really good for them. Ish Smith has given them good minutes off the bench lately. It's just like you, you don't know what's going to happen next with the Wizards, which I guess is part of the entertainment of this season. Anyway, uh, always love talking sports with the man. Standing room only podcast and great content when it comes to the Washington football team and the NFL draft on the athletic DC. Ben Standing, man. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Al, appreciate the run. We'll, we'll see what happens. We had on Thursday night a successful start to the Capitals' biggest stretch of the season so far. The first of three consecutive games against, or as they say in hockey, against the New York Islanders. And the Caps won one nothing in a shootout at the Islanders. Also on Thursday night, the Pittsburgh Penguins beat the New Jersey Devils 5-1. The Boston Bruins won their sixth straight 5-1 at the Buffalo Sabres. And the New York Rangers lost at home to the Philadelphia Flyers. 3-2. So as we speak on this Friday, the Capitals are back to being alone atop the East Division at 64 points. Penguins and Islanders are tied for second at 63 points. So yes, still just one point separates the top three teams in the East. Bruins are in fourth place, four points behind the Caps at 60 points. And the Rangers are in fifth place at 52 points. Caps with a 12-point advantage on the Rangers. So yes, it remains bunched in tight up top in the East, but the Capitals are back to being alone up top in the East. Now, I mentioned some other results relevant to the Capitals on Thursday night. Did you see or have you heard what else happened in the NHL on Thursday night? You can't make this stuff up. A 7-3 Detroit Red Wings win over the Dallas Stars, a game in which the X-Cap, Jacob Vrana, had four goals. Yes, 
four goals for Jake the Snake, four even strength goals, which was something he was doing on the regular for the Caps this season, scoring nothing but even strength goals. Look, the Caps got back Anthony Mantha. Mantha's been very good for the Capitals. No, he did not score on Thursday night. First time in five games, Mantha doesn't have a goal. But Mantha did end up being number three on the Capitals in five-on-five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick at 66.67%. Mantha on the ice in five-on-five situations on Thursday night. Caps had 14 shot attempts for versus just seven shot attempts again. So Mantha's been a positive, you know, but Verona, look, we knew Verona's skilled, okay? And he did some very good things here with the Caps. And so to see that on Thursday night, Caps on the one hand uh, end up scoring zero goals over the three periods and overtime. And old Jake the Snakes got four goals in a 7-3 smashing of the Stars for the Red Wings. Uh, it, just, it was just impossible to ignore something like that. But anyway, Capitals do a very good job in this game, certainly defensively, certainly over the final two periods. And, you know, you weren't quite sure what to expect from the Caps in this game, considering the Caps had not played since last Sunday afternoon. Caps had a nice respite with all these big games coming up against the Islanders. And then after that, back-to-back games at home against the Pittsburgh Penguins. Caps were coming off what was an ugly loss last Sunday afternoon. That 6-3 loss had Boston Caps in that game, overcoming a 2-0 first period deficit with three consecutive goals for a 3-2 second period lead, but then giving up the game's final four goals. So you get the nice break, but you got this big stretch of games. You're playing at the Islanders. You weren't quite sure what was going to go down, and the Caps end up doing a great job overall in the game. Get the win, improve to 16-7-2 on the road this season. Caps are tied with the Winnipeg Jets for the most road wins in the NHL at 16, and the Caps do have a better record overall than the Jets do on the road. Caps 16-7-2 on the road, Jets 16-8-1 on the road. Now, before we go any further, we should make mention of this. Alex Ovechkin did not play late in the third period on Thursday night, nor did he play in overtime on Thursday night. Something clearly happened. Something clearly was wrong. And this cracked me up. Head coach Peter Laviolette during his post-game Zoom press conference said he didn't know why Ovechkin didn't play late in the third period or in overtime. Sure you didn't, Peter. Okay, sure you didn't. The head coach doesn't know why his best player, maybe the greatest scorer in the history of the league, doesn't play late in the third period or overtime. So obviously a little bit of gamesmanship going on there. Uh, Ovi suffering some kind of an injury. You just hope clearly that he's okay. This is a big deal that he didn't play this late. Ovi has been unbelievably durable in his career. After his great goal scoring, it's probably the most impressive thing about him that he's so rarely missed time in his career. And he's not one of these, you know, dandies who doesn't like to mix it up. I mean, Ovechkin has been a hits machine for so much of his career. He's played so much, and yet the body has held up, knock on wood. So not sure what the ailment was. Wish we had more to get into here in terms of what he's dealing with, but that's impossible to ignore. No Ovechkin late in the third period Noah Ovechkin in overtime. Caps already were without one of their top defensemen and Justin Schultz on Thursday night. He did not play in the game due to a lower body injury that was suffered in that loss at the Bruins on Sunday afternoon. Caps won the shootout competition 2-1, got goals from Nicholas Backstrom and Evgeny Kuznetsov. And of course, in a one nothing shootout win, you got to highlight the goaltending. Ilya Samsonov was terrific for the Capitals on Thursday night. It was Samsonov who got the start. I don't think anybody was surprised by that, given some of the recent struggles of Vitek Vanacek. And Samsonov stops all 26 of the shots on goal that he faces, including 15 in the first period in which the Caps got smashed in the puck possession battle. 
More on that in just a bit. Now, for the game, Samsonov really wasn't tested a ton per natural stat trick. He only faced three high danger shots on goal as compared to 13 medium danger shots on goal and nine low danger shots on goal. But still, I mean, you pitch a shutout like this in a huge game at the Islanders, all praise to Ilya Samsonov. He now, if you go by his record, and I'm not normally uh, all that enthusiastic about looking at players' records, but we can do this with a goaltender here. Uh, Samsonov, 12-3-1 on the season. How about that? 12-3-1. He is the only goaltender in the NHL this season with at least 15 starts and fewer than four losses. And, you know, that's a team thing, no doubt, but that also is a reflection of how Samsonov, for the most part, has played. And he was great on Thursday night. The Islanders goaltender was the ex-cap Samyan Verlamov. He stopped all 28 of the shots on goal that he faced. But neither team really mustered much in the way of the high danger shot on goal. I mentioned the Caps getting walloped in the puck possession battle in the first period. They did. Caps in the first period, just nine five-on-five shot attempts to the Islanders, 21 per natural stat trick, and just four shots on goal to the Islanders, 15. Caps have had a hard time this season putting together 60 complete minutes. Thursday night was no different. Opening 20 minutes were not good for the Capitals, but as bad as the Caps were in the first period, that's how well the Caps played over the second and third periods. Caps over those final two periods, 38 five-on-five shot attempts to the Islanders, 13 per natural stat trick, and 23 shots on goal to the Islanders 10. So Caps lose the puck possession battle handily in the first period, but win the puck possession battle handily over the second and third periods. Here was something else that was interesting too from a puck possession standpoint. Caps finished the game with 62 total shot attempts to the Islanders 39. Caps were plus 23 in the total shot attempts department, but the Islanders blocked a bunch of shots. That was the frustration for the Caps on Thursday night. And if you watch the game, you saw this, especially on the Caps power play, Islanders with a lot of block shots. Isles finished with 17 block shots to the Caps seven. It was a defensive by the game, no doubt. I mean, this is, this, this was like what a Stanley Cup playoff game would be. And, you know, like I said the other day, this is almost like a mini playoff series here for the Capitals. Three consecutive games against the Islanders. Caps for the game went 0 for 3 on the power play, 2 for 2 on the penalty kill. Caps committed just two minors, both of which were tripping minors in the third period, including one by Alex Ovechkin. But I'm guessing Ovi wasn't benched due to his third period minor. Uh, Again, it seems like he suffered something and he did not play late in the third period and then in overtime. So a successful start to the Capitals to this big stretch of the season. Next up, you have a game at the Islanders on Saturday night at 7. Then the Caps are home to the Islanders this coming Tuesday night at 7. And then after this stretch of three games, consecutively against the Islanders. Caps have back-to-back home games against the Pittsburgh Penguins this coming Thursday night at 7 and then the following Saturday night at 7. The regular season is winding down. Today is April 23rd. Capitals' final regular season game is May 11th. And at least for now, the Capitals are back to being alone atop the East Division. All right, one more topic before we call it a week on the podcast, and that topic is Georgetown basketball. Some stuff be happening with the Hoyas, and today's a good chance to catch up on that. So first of all, Javon Blair on Wednesday did announce that he is entering the 2021 NBA draft, and he's not doing the thing where you enter the draft but maintain collegiate eligibility. Javon Blair be gone. Uh, he's entering the NBA draft, foregoing his extra year of eligibility and signing with an agent. Remember, seniors can come back for an extra year. Everyone can get an extra year of eligibility 
off what happened with the COVID-19 pandemic this past season. All winter sport athletes in the NCAA have this luxury. But Javon Blair is saying, nah, we be out of here. And uh, he's going to put his name into the NBA draft and sign with an agent. So he's done at Georgetown. Javon Blair was a key piece for the Hoyas this past season, was second on Georgetown in minutes per game, 34.68, led the Hoyas in scoring, 15.4 points per game, led all qualified Hoyas in assists per game at 3.6, and led the Hoyas in both three-point attempts and made threes. Uh, He shot 35.1%, Blair did, on threes. Now, it was kind of a weird year for Blair in terms of starting versus coming off the bench. Blair played in 25 of Georgetown's 26 games, with 17 starts. Everything changed with a 68-60 win at DePaul on February 27th. Blair did not play in that game. The head coach, Patrick Ewing, after the game, simply saying that Blair did not play due to a, quote, coach's decision, end quote. And then from that point moving forward, uh, Blair did play, but he came off the bench the rest of the season. But he was a key piece for the Hoyas this past season, no doubt. Uh, His departure isn't a surprise, but it is significant. We are, by the way, still awaiting word on two other seniors for Georgetown this past year, Jamarco Pickett and the graduate transfer, Chudier Belay. So we'll see what happens with those two. There's not a lot of optimism that either guy will be coming back for his extra year of eligibility, but until you know, you don't know. Now, what's also interesting with Georgetown over these last few days is who apparently Javon Blair's replacement will be. And it's not necessarily like this guy is brought here to do exactly what Javon Blair did. But Javon Blair, like I said, was first on the Hoyas last season in both three-point attempts and made threes. And we had news that came out April 17th that this kid, Caden Rice, is transferring to Georgetown from the Citadel. He's set to be a graduate transfer. And this is a very intriguing transfer pickup for the Hoyas. I spoke to you recently about another interesting transfer pickup for the Hoyas, this kid Trey King out of Eastern Kentucky. Well, Caden Rice is along those lines of this guy has a chance to really be an impact transfer for Georgetown in the 2021-2022 season. So Caden Rice for the Citadel this past season started all 25 of the Citadel's games. He was number one on the team in minutes per game at 33.8, was number two on the team in points per game at 17.6. But here's what's really interesting about Caden Rice. He is a classic volume three-point shooter. Caden Rice, last college basketball season, was second in Division One in three-point attempts at 264 and was sixth in Division One in made threes at 92. Now think about this for a moment. First of all, there are so many kids in Division One college basketball. You're talking well over 300 programs in Division One men's college basketball. And the Citadel last season only played 25 games, okay? Some teams played more than 30. The Citadel played 25, and yet Caden Rice finished second in Division One in three-point attempts and sixth in Division One in made threes. It gives you a sense of how much of a chucker Caden Rice is. But there's also this. The Citadel this past season played at one of the more frenetic paces in all of college basketball. KenPalm.com has a stat called adjusted tempo, which is a metric that measures possessions per 40 minutes adjusted for opponent. The Citadel this past season was fourth in Division One in the adjusted tempo metric. The Citadel had an adjusted tempo of 74.2. For comparison's sake, Georgetown this past season was 101st in Division One 
in adjusted tempo. And it's interesting, you go down the rankings, Maryland this past season was 321st in adjusted tempo. Virginia this past season was dead last in Division I in adjusted tempo, 357th. And I bring this up because if you're Caden Rice and you have thrived with the way the Citadel has played basketball, but now you're coming to Georgetown, is that not perhaps an indication that Georgetown is about to do offense the way the Citadel does offense. And, you know, it's not like Georgetown necessarily plays this completely backwards, retroactive, antiquated style of offense. You know, Patrick Ewing toiled as an assistant in the NBA for years, and Georgetown has actually had some pretty decent offensive teams under Patrick over these last few years. You know, Georgetown's not a team that plays a bunch of games in like, you know, the 40s and 50s with the point totals. But, there's definitely another level Georgetown can get to offensively. Again, the Hoyas last season, just 101st in Division I in adjusted tempo. The Citadel was fourth. Caden Rice had a very good season, and yet Caden Rice opts to transfer. Now, you know, maybe there are personal issues leading Caden Rice to do this, but this to me is an indication, is it not? Or at least a suggestion, is it not? That maybe, just maybe, the Hoyas are about to do some running and some gunning. And maybe, just maybe, Patrick is about to modernize the way he does offense. Because combine that with another piece of major news this Hoyas offseason, the transferring of Kudis Wahab. Kudis Wahab, stunningly, and this I say stunningly because I think a lot of people weren't aware that Kudis Wahab was on the outs with the Hoyas. But Kudis Wahab, on March 25th, it was announced by Georgetown that he had entered the transfer portal. And Kudis, the big man, right, the 6'11 Nigerian, ends up transferring, of course, to Maryland. Now, here's a big man in Kudis Wahab. The Hoyas, of course, have a head coach in Patrick Ewing, one of the great big men in both college basketball and NBA history. It's not like Wahab played some tiny role on Georgetown this past year. He was a featured player. He was a force for the Hoyas as Georgetown won the Big East tournament. And yet Wahab is leaving. Why might that be? Maybe, just maybe, it's because Patrick doesn't want to do offense through his big men anymore. Maybe, just maybe, Patrick wants to speed things up and do things more along the lines of what so many other programs are doing right now in college basketball. By the way, if that's true, I applaud that. I like that. I think that's progressive. I think that's forward thinking. I think that's appealing to recruits. I think that could work. You know, I think that'd be entertaining. You know, if you're Georgetown, right, you're trying to drum up interest in your program and get more people to come to your games, there are worse things you can do then play with more tempo and shoot more threes and try to be more entertaining. So I would be a double thumbs up on this if it's the case. And I stress that word if, we do not know. But you got to wonder, like a guy like Caden Rice, why is he leading the Citadel? He's got a good thing going on. I know Georgetown's a bigger program, but still, uh, it's not like the Hoyas have been thriving in recent seasons. And yet Rice is going to Georgetown. Again, there may be more to it than that, but just something to be thinking about if you're a Hoyas fan. So I think this is good news. Caden Rice coming to Georgetown. In addition to, like I said, the Eastern Kentucky transfer, Trey King. I think both guys can help Georgetown immediately come next season. Losing Wahab clearly does hurt. I mean, Wahab is a talented guy. Losing Blair hurts. He was a key piece for Georgetown this past year. But like I said, nobody's really stunned by that. There's been some other news with the Hoyas too. Another kid entering the transfer portal, actually, this freshman, TJ Berger, went into the portal on Wednesday. Uh, he, he barely played last year, only played in 15 games. But, you know, like we've been talking about on the podcast, there now is essentially free agency in college basketball. The, the transfer portal thing is unbelievable. Every time, you know, you, you refresh your, your sports website, you see a new guy from your team 
going into the transfer portal or a new guy going from the transfer portal to your team. I mean, it's just, it, it's exactly like free agency. It's crazy. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it does make the offseason in college basketball all the more intriguing. Ultimately, what I do think is going to determine Georgetown's fortune in the next season is how good this recruiting class is. It is one of the more hyped recruiting classes Georgetown has had in a while. It's led by this five-star kid, Aminu Muhammad. You also have the son of Dikembe Mutombo, Ryan Mutombo, a big man uh, coming to the Hoyas as well. If this recruiting class lives up to the hype, Georgetown's going to have some weapons next season with Muhammad, with Mutombo, with King, with Rice. Remember, also coming back for Georgetown is your freshman point guard for this past season, Dante Harris, who won the Dave Gavitt Trophy as the most outstanding player in the Big East tournament. Dante Harris was tremendous in that win over the one seed in the Big East tournament, Villanova, in the quarters. Harris in that game, 18 points on 6 of 11 shooting, 5 assists versus no turnovers in 38 minutes as a starter. How about that? Freshman point guard taking on the one seed in the Big East Conference tournament at MSG. He gives you 18 points, 6 of 11 shooting, 5 assists, no turnovers in 38 minutes. Just a tremendous job. And it wasn't just that, by the way. 16 of Harris's 18 points came in the second half. He drained two free throws with 4.7 seconds left to take Georgetown from trailing by one to leading by one. And that was the final margin of victory at 72-71. So there is reason for optimism with the Hoyas. It's not been a great last few years, no doubt. The season certainly did not end well with that thrashing at the hands of Colorado in the NCAA tournament. But Georgetown, of course, winning the Big East tournament, such a great achievement, making the NCAA tournament, all things considered, a great achievement given where Georgetown was entering the conference tournament. And you got, you know, a lot of movement this offseason, yes, but you got enough talent, it looks like, coming in or staying with you to where you got a chance to be good next season. It's been a while since we truthfully could say that about the Hoyas going into a season. All right, that will do it for you and me. Busy sports weekend upcoming. Capitals are back at the Islanders on Saturday night. The Wizards, winners of six consecutive games, are at the Oklahoma City Thunder on Friday night, then home to the Cleveland Cavaliers on Sunday night. The Nationals have a three-game series at the New York Mets. The Orioles have a three-game series at home against the hottest team in the majors, the Oakland A's, and the Washington football team continuing to get set for the draft. Who knows? Maybe Alex Smith sounds off to someone again, but lots of good draft talk on this podcast this week. The weekend, always a good time to catch up on whatever you missed. Would highly encourage you to check out my conversation with Ian Wharton, NFL writer, NFL draft analyst for Complex Sports. Very good, especially when it comes to talking quarterbacks. Had some really good insight on what the Washington football team may do this coming Thursday night in the first round of the draft. My chat with Ian is in episode 44 of the Al Galdi podcast. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give.